The Beats, The Beat Generation. Where to begin? I'm Blair Helsing, the producer of this podcast. I'd like to begin with a quote from Lawrence Ferlinghetti. Quote, If you spend an enormous amount of time every day sitting, you're not observing the outside world anymore. That can be very limiting for a poet. It cuts down on your input. Unquote. This is from a book of interviews with Ferlinghetti, Jello Biafra, Henry Rollins, and Billy Childish. A great book from research publications. I've posted a link to the book at our Twitter feed, now underscore beach, and on the podcast's Tumblr blog. By the way, research publications has its own podcast. But I digress. I asked where to begin to learn about the beats. I won't even start to list their known fields of creative endeavor or their cultural influence. To answer the question, I can think of no better authority than Jerry Semino, the founder and director of San Francisco's Beat Museum at 540 Broadway, corner of Romolo Place, on the north side of Broadway, halfway between Kearney and Columbus. On November 20th, 2018, I interviewed Jerry and Estelle Semino at the Beat Museum. As you will hear in this episode, construction is going on at the site. It's about to undergo seismic retrofitting. More on that in the podcasts. I say podcasts because the interview with Jerry and Estelle will release in a couple of episodes during December. This is episode six of North Beach Now, and it's part one of the Beat Museum today. In this episode, Jerry talks about the origins of the beats and some of the museum's more significant holdings. It's an audio tour recorded in real time. The drill is whirring. Let's have him (laughs) catch it. What is the purpose of this side being with the plywood and all? Are you recording? Yeah. Okay. So what they're doing here is we're going to lose this entrance for about 30 days because they've got to pour concrete in this area in order to shore up the foundation. Uh Uh-huh. What we're in the middle of right now is basically prep work for the actual seismic retrofit itself. So they built this fake wall. And then they're going to put a door in here. Mm-hmm. So we're going to lose access to this space for about 30 days. We're going to lose this door on Romolo for about 30 days. And back in here, if you look closely at this closet, you can see how uh, this is basically street level back here. Right. So we will be, you know, they'll be pouring concrete in here. You can see the, you can see the workmen out there right now. You oh. can hear their tools. Yeah, out there on the scaffolding. Yeah. So, uh... Is this sort of the basis of the whole reinforcement, is putting concrete on this west wall? Well, this is not the seismic retrofit It has itself. nothing to do with that. This okay. is a separate part of construction that's required. Ah. The, si- the actual seismic retrofit itself will be occurring sometime in 2019. We don't have the exact dates yet. Our landlord, which is the Chinatown Community Development Center, CCDC, they're terrific, and they are the ones handling the actual retrofit itself. But that will likely cause us to shut down for six months. Um, And right now, we don't know exactly how that's going to play out or when. We're probably going to try to find a, uh, a space in North Beach that we can occupy on a temporary basis uh, that will get us through that that construction period. 
but that's nothing set in stone. Nothing. We don't have the funds in place to really commit to anything at the moment, which is what my whole fundraising campaign is about to get us to that place. Mm-hmm. And I see you've changed the homepage of your website, yes, Kerouac.com, that's correct. to highlight the fundraising. Exactly, because uh, you're exactly right. We get a lot of hits on Kerouac.com, and we decided that this next six months is so important to the future that if we don't get done what we really know we need to get done, we could wind up disappearing. We, we actually just put out a new campaign recently that we mailed to people all over town saying, without your help, the Beat Museum just might disappear. Because there's a possibility that we could go away for six months while the seismic retrofit occurs, uh-huh. and we may not be able to reopen. Mm-hmm. There's a very distinct possibility. Not one I want, not one any of us choose, but things take dough, and we've got to raise the dough to make it happen. Mm-hmm. One, one of the things that we just uh, recently put together is... Uh, a GoFundMe page. Okay. We've got a Patreon page for people who would like to right. see something come out every month. They can give us $5 a month. Or a GoFundMe page, which is a different platform that somebody says, I just want to give you a one-time $25 or $50 donation. Mm-hmm. Or bigger. <laughs> and uh, then we have our own you know, other vehicles as well. And okay. we do accept checks and credit cards. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. And all that information is at Kerouac.com. Exactly. Any of those channels people could find there. And we would sure appreciate it. Okay. Good. Why don't I talk to you a little bit about uh, why people come here. Yes. And the, the normal things that we talk about when people walk in the door. One of the things I've learned and realized over the years as we all have gotten to know the people that come visit the Beat Museum in the last 12 years that we've been at this location mm-hmm. is people are walking in for their own reasons. For some people, it's a, a spiritual quest. For some people, they just want to, you know, understand the uh, the allure of the beats. It may be about the the uh, the sexuality of the beats. It could be about the drug usage of the beats. But uh, all those things are true. The beats wrote about everything in their lives, warts and all. But we do try to help them understand. Yeah, but bottom line, overall, it really is a spiritual quest. You know, it's the hero's journey. For people who've read On the Road, for people that are familiar with Joseph Campbell, On the Road is the hero's journey. It's very much like Star Wars. It's very much like Lord of the Rings. You know, mm-hmm. you set mm-hmm. out on a quest. Right. And you've got to accomplish these things. And you, these people gather around you as you're going on that quest. And in the end, you wind up home, but everything's, you know, the same but you. You've changed. <laughs> and that's what's happened with On the Road. That was, I actually in, asked uh, Phil Cousineau, one of our local uh, writers here in North Beach, who worked closely with Joseph Campbell, uh, whether Kerouac may have read some of Campbell's work. And he said, you know, it's quite likely because Campbell's works came out in 47, 48, 49 initially. Yes, right. And so Kerouac, of course, was a prolific reader and very well may have incorporated some of those, those ideas. So it's kind of interesting. I've never, yeah, I've never found it in the literature, but uh, it wouldn't surprise me in the least if Kerouac wasn't aware of it. So one of the things we tell people is it all started a block and a half up the street in 1955 when Allen Ginsberg wrote Howell. And it was published in 1956 by City Lights Bookstore directly across the street. And in 1957, Lawrence Ferlinghetti was put on trial for obscenity for publishing a book of poetry. Now, he was acquitted, of course, but we call it the battle for free expression. And basically, it reaffirmed First Amendment rights here in the United States. 
freedom of speech. You know, we're still fighting the battles, obviously. And uh, this was a major, major moment in the history of freedom of speech in America. And people, you know, recognize that moment. And frankly, it's what put the beats on the map. You know, had Ferlinghetti not be, been willing to go to jail for what he believed in, uh, we might not be talking about it because this is what got him all the publicity. Lawrence is fond of saying when the government is putting you on trial for obscenity for poetry, people want to read the dirty book. <laughs> <laughs> so they sold a lot of copies of How. It's what made all the beats famous. And then, of course, you got On the Road. Now, On the Road is the true story of Jack Kerouac, Allen Ginsberg, and this book literally also came out in 1957. And Kerouac uh, wrote the book, of course. Neil Cassidy is the main character of the book. They both got extremely famous. They were on television. They were in magazine covers and radio interviews. And uh, they, they hipped people to what this whole idea of beat was. But then Neil Cassidy, 10 years later, got extremely famous a second time as the driver of the psychedelic bus. This book, The Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test, is quite familiar to a lot of people who walk in the door. Yes. A lot of people do know, some people don't know, that LSD was actually legal in the United States until October of 1966. So they weren't even breaking any laws when they were doing this. Um, But what's important, in my opinion, is that all of these works influence so many people but especially Bob Dylan and the Beatles. If you look at the history of the Beatles and you look at the covers of some of these books, mm-hmm. they used to spell their name the Silver Beatles, B-E-E-T-L-E-S, like a little bug, like Buddy Holly and the Crickets, right? And yet in 1960, they met a guy and worked with him, and he basically was known as Britain's Beat Poet. And he's the one who convinced them when they were doing a TV show in 1960. Oh, you spell it B-E-E-T-L-E-S? Well, I'm Britain's beat poet. Why don't you spell it B-E-A-T-L-E-S for tonight's show? And they did, and they never went back. (laughs) And that's pretty well documented. So in a lot of ways, you know, the whole history of rock and roll is influenced by the beat generation. Everybody in the world's been influenced by Bob Dylan and the Beatles. So if you think about it in that sense... That's why people, when they walk in our door here, they know what this stuff is about. They know that, you know, these guys were the literary equivalent of Marlon Brando and James Dean or what Elvis was doing in music in 1957. Uh These were all the bad boys in 1957. (laughs) They're the ones you want to hang out with, have a drink with. You bet. But you don't want to bring them home to meet your parents. (laughs) So here in the museum, you have all these layers of detail and connection and content and the fabric of how these various people collaborated or at least were in the same place at the same time, sharing ideas and moving literature forward, which had this ripple effect you've just been speaking of. Tell me a little bit more about the fabric that's in between these major figures you've described. The 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 visual artists, the other poets who may not be so widely known, because you here in the museum have captured so much material that um, it's not only a museum, but it's a library and repository of many of the, you might say, artifacts of Correct. that era. So tell me a little bit more about those interstitial places and people. Well, you know, it really was a multidisciplinary uh, 
uh, uh, event or timeline, you know, because they all knew each other. The writers knew the painters and the dancers and the filmmakers and the, the various artistic creative types of people. You know, these were the nonconformists of their era. Um, in the post-war America, when most uh, people came home from World War II and uh, the guys just wanted to marry their high school sweethearts and they wanted to get a good job in the suburbs and a, a house in the suburbs, a, a white picket fence, and settle down to a life of comfort and, and stability, these folks, for the most part, were the ones that either did not want that or couldn't achieve that. Um, you know, Allen Ginsberg, you know, has recently come out of the closet. Jack Kerouac knew he couldn't handle a family, and he could barely take care of himself, much less a wife and a family. So they kind of either opted out or they were forced out of the mainstream. But they're the ones that changed the world with their own creative efforts, and in my opinion, their authenticity. Everything was spontaneous at that point. You know, you consider the painting equivalents, you know, of Franz Klein, Jackson Pollock, and they were doing this this stuff that nobody had ever seen before, you know? It was kind of a free-form time, and the, the music reflected that. Jazz, of course, was such a big part of the beat generation. So you had this free-form jazz and bebop and spontaneity, and Kerouac was writing in that spontaneous style. So they all kind of overlapped. They, they knew each other. They were friends. I mean, people in North Beach know about, you know, the Sixth Gallery, over in the marina, which is where Allen Ginsberg read Howell for the first time. And that came out of SFAI, that came out of Wally Hedrick and his friends and Jay DeFeo, they were all part of that scene. So they were they were interwoven, as you mentioned. They were really a big big group of friends. Very good. Do you have any favorite items here? Sure. Why don't we step inside and I'll show you some of what's really great about this place. One of the really great things about the Beat Museum is we're small, we don't have a lot of dough, and we don't have a budget for buying artifacts. But the beauty of what we do is people contribute and give us things all the time. Sometimes it shows up in the mail. Sometimes they bring it in the door. Uh, this is Allen Ginsberg's typewriter. I never met the guy who loaned it to us, but he contacted us about five or six years ago and said, I got Alan's typewriter. And I said, gee, how do you know? He says, well, he gave it to me, but you can contact the Allen Ginsberg Trust and they uh -huh. will verify that this is real. It belonged to him. Okay. And uh, this would have been a 1960s Olivetti version, portable model. Uh, just like people today have had multiple computers, they all had multiple typewriters. You know, this is a, an old desk model. Invented in 1885, the typewriter was a workhorse for 100 years. Yeah. This is a 1940s portable typewriter, similar to the one that Neil Cassidy had when he was in San Quentin in prison for uh, a couple of joints of marijuana where he got five years to life. This is uh, Ginsburg's 1960s uh, portable typewriter. This is a shirt. The same gentleman loaned us this Bob Dylan Rolling Thunder Tour shirt. Dylan gave this to the people on the tour, and this was oh. Alan's shirt. Oh, great. And he would have worn that. Okay. This came from the Cassidy family. John Allen Cassidy is a good friend of mine. His name is, he's named after Jack and Alan and Neil's his dad and Carolyn's his mother. And uh, he just happened to be named after his father's two best friends. And this hung on his bedroom wall when he was a teenager. And you can see it's got writing in the top because Uncle Alan would come visit and inside those stars and that top hat that Alan's, that Uncle Sam hat, 
uh, he writes, it's my birthday, uh, June of 1967, and Neil Cassidy's still alive. You can tell Neil's still alive, and it's 67. But then on the stripes, it's 1973, mm-hmm. and Neil's passed on, mm-hmm. and Alan's still out there doing his thing. And he's, at that point, really transitioned to the whole hippie scene versus the beat scene. Yeah. But uh, John Allen Cassidy loaned us this piece, which is one of my favorites. Right. He bought that in a head shop on Haight Street in 1966. (laughs) (laughs) And, of course, Allen Ginsberg appears in the video, the music video, which was an early music video of um, Subterranean Homesick Blues. Correct. He's one of the guys. In the alley. In the alley, standing off on the left-hand side as you're looking at the screen. Dylan's dropping those cards johnny's in the basement mixing up the medicine and alan's over there talking to another guy and and uh you could you could argue that that's the first rock video definitely could so this is uh, another one of my favorite items this is the shirt that neil cassidy wore when he drove the bus for ken kesey and the (laughs) merry pranksters this came through mountain girl and ken babs okay and uh came through john cassidy again and uh, John presented it to us. I was actually there when Mountain Girl and uh, Ken Babs uh, gave it to him. And uh, it's a cool thing, that old referee shirt, that Rawlings referee shirt. <laughs> uh, pretty neat, yeah. pretty neat piece. This is one of my favorite sections, which is Lawrence Ferlinghetti. I, I love this because this is an original Ferlinghetti poem, Ah, Sunflower, Weary of Time, which obviously comes from Blake. It's the, the Blake poem from 1700s. And, of course, Blake was a huge influence on Allen Ginsberg. He actually wrote the Sunflower Sutra, which came directly from Ah Sunflower. So the, the reason I like this little exhibit, with, along with the bust of, mm. of Lawrence Ferlinghetti here, is that you've got Blake and Ginsberg and Ferlinghetti tied up in this little three-foot section over the, over the centuries. It's, it's just very cool. I would imagine when Van Morrison has visited here, which has been more than once, yes. he's probably spent a little time looking at this. Van was cool. He was really walking around, looking at the exhibits, taking pictures of the exhibits, actually. And uh, he understands this stuff. He, yeah. really, he really digs. You know, he's paid tribute to so much of this in his works over time. Yes. And he comes to City Lights and signs books. They, they oh. publish one of his books. Oh. And uh, so he loves the neighborhood. He hangs out in this neighborhood. It's important to him. This is a photo exhibit that will be coming down relatively soon. It's been up for the last three months. But this was the world premiere of the beat scene, which were photographed by Bert Glynn. And 1957 through 58 and then 59, uh, he was in New York City. This is Kerouac in New York City. This is actually Wavy Gravy when he was known as Hugh Romney. Okay. He was a beat poet. Before Wavy became, you know, his celebrated self, mm-hmm. he was the beat poet Hugh Romney in the late 1950s in New York City. And then uh, in this room, we've got the photos from San Francisco. Some great shots here. I love this one of Ferlinghetti and Shig oh, in wow. the basement of City Lights. That's great. I know, that's 1960. And then uh, there's Enrico Banducci, Jay DeFeo with the Rose great shot of that mm-hmm. and these are these are photos that just kind of came to light uh, I love some of these shots you know local places the coffee gallery mm. here and the fox and the hound 
and the uh, uh, Delexi and, and various other places that are part of this scene. Oh, these are just fantastic. Yeah, they really are. This is our movie room where you can hear the applause on the video. And this is basically a small little room where people get to hang out and watch as much of a documentary as they enjoy. Um, we love it. We, we have had this space since the day we opened. And it's worked out really well. People really just kind of take comfort here. It's a, it's a good little spot. You can stay for five minutes or stay for an hour. Who directed the documentary? It's a great documentary. This one that we're playing right now is called The Source. It's by a guy by the name of Chuck Workman. And he is a real Hollywood guy. He works for the Academy Awards. He was able to get Johnny Depp involved in this project, as well as Dennis Hopper and John Turturro. And they all do little cameos as Depp does... Kerouac, John Turturro does Ginsburg, and Dennis Hopper does a great William S. Burroughs. So uh, people enjoy this. It's a it's a good history, but it's also very entertaining as well. It came out in Sundance in 1999. He actually invited us out, and we went to the uh, premiere of that. It's oh, great, wonderful! Great film. I have to come back and watch. Yeah, it's a good one. So as we as we walk up the stairway here, as I mentioned before, one of the things we like to say is in the photographs. What Elvis was to music, what James Dean and Marlon Brando were to film, Jack Kerouac and the other beat writers were to literature. Now, the second level has been a great place for us since the day we opened because it all it, it serves as a, you know, a portion of the museum, and it also has been a great gathering spot. Uh, the community really takes advantage of this room. We probably have at least one event a week, if not two, sometimes three. And we just, you know, move some of the furniture out of the way and bring out the chairs. And we have the little stage here and the, the video screen there. And it's worked out really well, you know, for, for groups that are uh, in the neighborhood. It's a comfortable little space. And it's served us really well. But one of my, one of my great fears is we're going to lose this space. Because with the seismic retrofit comes inspections and comes changes. And this space is not up to new codes, current mm -hmm. codes. It's grandfathered in. Mm -hmm. But once things change, I'm being told that unless I can raise the money to lower the floor or raise the ceiling, we're going to have to close this off to public use. This would be your part of the post-retrofit aspect where you have a, an existing space that people appreciate and that adds the ability to have flexibility and have events. Correct. But in order to maintain that after the retrofit, it's on your shoulders here at the museum to be able to make the changes to keep this to code and carry on with events. Correct. The alternative is it would be used for storages, maybe offices, but it would not be open to the public. Mm. So that's what we're wrestling with and what we're in the middle of right now. So we are trying to put a, a, a great face on it. We're trying to uh, do everything we can to raise significant amounts of money because I'm going to talk about another uh, element of the retrofit downstairs. We have great opportunity to expand. Um, I, I'm a kind of a glass half full kind of guy. I prefer to be an optimist. So the way I envision this is once we do raise the money and we make the changes we want to make, this space will be brought up the code and we will be able to enhance our space downstairs. So rather than losing, say, 25% of our entire square footage by having to close this, mm -hmm. I prefer 
to envision a future where we raise probably a half a million dollars mm-hmm. to allow us to get this section up the code and then build a mezzanine down on the bottom level, complete with a beat cafe that instead of losing 25% of our space, will probably increase our space by 25, maybe 50% of square footage. So that's what we're looking at. And that's the vision that I'm trying to maintain. I would so much like to be hanging out in that cafe. It would be cool. I know. I've been talking to people about it. Oh, great. Saying this would be a great thing in the neighborhood. Well, the way we see the cafe working is uh, if we have a second level, it could operate similar to Vesuvio. Yeah. In the sense that we have a second level that's elevated, and you can see down onto the street, which is very cool. When you're in Vesuvio on the second level, you're in your own little world up there. So we could have a, a bottom level where the cafe is out front, and we could have you know tables and heat lamps out front. And it would allow for a whole new scene. It would allow for us to have a good reason to stay open after 7 o'clock. Sure. You know, we've never really stayed open after 7 o'clock simply because... We don't see much business, and it's just not worth it. But with a cafe, then all of a sudden we have a whole new income stream. So we could stay open late, and it would allow us to have a, a different you know, environment here on Broadway that I think would enhance the whole street. And, I agree with you. And the thing I love about the idea is if you go to our website, you'll see that we've got six letters of support on file, one of which is our landlord saying we support the idea of the Beat Cafe. We want to... Uh, have a new lease with you guys when the retrofit is done we would like to see you remain we would like to see a cafe as a part of it we've gotten support from north beach neighbors from the telegraph hill dwellers uh sfai even the contemporary jewish museum everybody's in in support of this they see how we bring value to the neighborhood and now it's just a financial uh decision that's gotta that's gotta be resolved in order to allow all these things to play out and that's where we're asking for help. And uh, if anybody is listening and you're in a position to help, please contact me because this is uh, something we want to see ha- happen and enhanced. Uh, my greatest fear is that it just won't raise enough dough to make it happen and it could just wind up disappearing. I'd hate to see that. The Beat Museum website is Kerouac.com, K-E-R-O-U-A-C.com. That website is mobile-friendly and has much interesting content. Our guest was Jerry Semino. The Beat Museum tweets at Kerouac.com, all spelled out. And they have a Facebook page. More Beat Museum content from North Beach Now will be upcoming this month. This wraps up Episode 6 of North Beach Now. The podcast recently began blogging. It's hosted on Tumblr, and the address is listed in our Twitter feed. I recently posted a link there to the website Beatdom, B-E-A-T-D-O-M, with stories on the origins of the spelling of the Beatles. Other interesting content on the Beats is there, too. We're on Twitter at now underscore beach. Feel free to follow and reach us there. All podcasts will be available at our SoundCloud channel, plus Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play Music. Thanks again for listening to North Beach Now. Blair Helsing signing off from Telegraph Hill.